So yeah, we were just talking about how it's very expensive to live in Norway. Yeah, if you come from another country that doesn't have the same economy. Well, I mean, I wonder about it because I keep hearing stories of people saying like, oh, it's so expensive and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, is it really that expensive? Like, because a lot of, it seems like a lot of creative people live there and it seems like they, they can afford it. So I don't know. I wonder. Yeah, no, I think my economy is not grand, but I'm doing a lot of projects and I'm doing fine. And I have this economy that is very fragmented, but I get by, so it's good. As we all do, yeah. I mean, I've got four job, four part-time jobs, one of which be, is being an artist. So like, you, we all seem to do that. It seems very common. You know, in the old days, it used to be like you could be a teacher or some sort of thing that would have a, you know, be a, enough of a full-time salary that you wouldn't have to do anything else. But these days, that's not even possible, really. Yeah, no. And maybe it takes too much energy. And as an artist, you need to also have not so much be locked into one place as over a long period of time. So I see that as good as being flexible enough to do projects and travel abroad. Maybe not these times, but travel to other cities and do projects in other places. So that leads to, of course, tell me all the things you're doing. Because I looked through your, your website and your CV and it's like, you do a lot of different things. Yeah, the clue to all that or what I managed is that to have a lot of collaborations So I feel like when I collaborate with other people, either it's with art projects or curatorial projects or any project, really, if I collaborate with another person, it's really creating a space where you can really create much more than I could, I think, on my own. So the clue is to collaborate, I think. For me, it is very important collaborate as an artist or collaborate as a curator like find collaboration from your perspective well everything really i am working with drawing that's my main medium when i'm working as an artist and when i do that i do not collaborate with other people because it's very yeah it's very much me but i found that i started to collaborate in 2006 with another artist, Tala Fustwell, and we have collaborated since. And the reason also since we've been collaborating since then is because we have a good collaboration. We work well together. We are in tune. So that's very important, of course. But we started out really curating exhibitions because we went to the same curatorial studies here in Norway. So since then, we curated exhibitions, and then we started also to create exhibitions that we, like duo exhibitions, where we had our own work. She is a photographer, and I'm making drawings. And then also, we created an installation that was collaborative installation with objects. So that is kind of both curatorial and artistic. And then since 2012, I have collaborated with another artist that Francisca Sigrist with creating Performance Art Oslo. And that is an organization that we have created a yearly festival since then, since 2013. 
And every year we also made other projects, performance art events in public space. So those are two main collaborations. And we also collaborate well together because when it is a good collaboration, you just keep going kind of, or I do. And then also I collaborate with my husband, who is an architect. We started collaborating with doing this land art biannual in 2013. And when we made this land art project at the seabed in sea, we created the artwork for the low tide in the during low tide so that when it was covered in high tide, it was invisible. It was only made for then animals. And when it is low tide, it's made for humans. Anyway, we were gathering all these rocks to make a circle. And when he set up this stop motion camera, so when we looked at it after what we have done, it looked like a performance. So after that, we actually started doing performance together because we thought that was an interesting thing to do together. I want to go back a step, though, because I noticed on your website that it talked about your father ran a lithography shop. That's amazing. I can't imagine growing up in that. Do tell. Yes. So I grew up with an artist father and I knew what an artist was and is. So it was never a doubt in my mind that I would be an artist. So that's something that I feel is very special in growing up in that environment and basically in a studio. And when I, in 1976, he acquired this lithography press with some other artists and they set up a studio. So I basically went there when I started school. I started to go there after school on my way home and hang out in the studio, in the lithography press. <laughs> and yeah, it was really, really amazing because it's really about this relationship with that, the press and the technique and colors and ink and all that. And I'm very sentimental when it comes to the sound of the <laughs> lithography press. He sold it now because he feels too old to have it. And you didn't buy it from him? No, I... <laughs> it, <laughs> why? Yeah, I really thought about it. And I thought that then I had to really focus on running a lithography studio for the rest of my life. And I felt that... I didn't find the right collaborator to do that with, I guess. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I wonder about, because like, I sort of noticed you did some lithography, but you don't anymore, obviously, because your father sold off the press. But it's it's one of the, those, that's one of those mediums that like, you kind of have to do it as a group, you know, like you rarely, if ever hear about somebody saying, yes, I'm going to go to my personal printmaking studio. <laughs> Like it's so expensive, so large, like space wise that's needed to be able to have a good lithography setup that you, it's really hard to do it individually. So you kind of have to do that collaboratively or as a group or, or go to a workshop or something like this. Yeah. I mean, I tried really hard to get some young, fresh ideas and kids and you know, like the young graduates to really get in there and do it, but they didn't feel they had the economy either. So it was really this, like how to get funding for that. But it now it has a new home with another artist. So he hasn't set it up yet, but I'm sure he's going to do that. So 
Yeah, because you're talking stone lithography, which is extremely heavy. Yeah, but I started doing lithography then when I was six years old in 1976. So I made lithographs as Christmas presents. So everybody in the family got a print for Christmas. And yeah, when I look at them now, I'm like, yeah, actually pretty good. <laughs> for a, Or like also the themes are very much the same as I'm dealing with now with animals and environment and spirituality. When you say spirituality, what do you what kind of spirituality do you mean? I'm asking because my father's a priest. So that yeah, Episcopal priest. Well, I didn't grow up with a religion, but I was very uh, <laughs> and so it was very open to me the spirituality, but I was always very interested in mythology. Not that it is about spirituality. I went to the Stein, Rudolf Steiner school when I was a kid where also we are taught very much mythology, like also this, that you're told in mythology and then you can draw it in your books, like you make your own books in the Rudolf Steiner School. And then maybe a little bit early on, when I was younger, I had epilepsy. And that made it so that before I had a seizure, there was like warning vision happening. So... I feel that there was like warning or visions of animals and spirits and also this out-of-body feeling, dreams. So that was very present with my childhood. Okay, hold on a second. I'm, I'm, my ignorance is going to come out here, specifically about mental health and physical health and stuff. But like epilepsy, I didn't realize it was something you could outgrow. Yeah, uh, well, I didn't think so either because I outgrew when I was like 30. But since then, I haven't had a seizure. But the epilepsy that I have is, I still have it, at least the doctor says so. But for me, it's very much to have, get enough sleep and just take care. And yeah, sleep is very important. So basically, you didn't take care of yourself before you were 30. Yeah, yeah. It's very sensitive to blinking lights, for example. For me, so if I am near some blinking lights or maybe even driving in a car when the sun is coming in through the trees, that can trigger it. So, yeah, so I'm also surprised that I didn't have it after I'm 30. I, th I think it's just something that maybe changed in the brain. Or maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not a doctor. I, I, I have attest to having no knowledge of this whatsoever. <laughs> but epilepsy is like you have a seizure. Like I had this seizure called grandma. I don't know what it's called in English, but it's like... Grandma, yeah. Yeah, you get unconscious and you have very much... Well, your muscles, are, yeah, they, they tighten up. And you have cramps. Yeah, cramps. i totally unconscious. And when I wake up, I didn't understand where I was, my environment. So I wouldn't really understand. I had to really sleep it out kind of because it's such a hard toll on, on the system but right before this happens very often I get this blinking light that I see in front of my eyes and also I see these visions so these visions were very much like okay they're part of you know they're just there <laughs> it wasn't really strange for me I thought that was just normal we all think we're normal yeah <laughs> Well, because we all are normal, because I mean, even even though we're all a little kooky, a little off kilter, 
but each of our lives are normal to us. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And then I went to art school in Bergen at the College of Art and Design there. And then we had this free open class and you, you, you can basically do whatever you want. And I was like, oh, I'm going to make a shaman drum. And I'm like, I don't know why I, I thought so, but that's what I thought. I'm sorry, wait, what kind? Oh, you said a salmon drum? No, a shaman, shaman for shamanism. Shaman drum, got it, okay. Yeah, so then I decided to make a shaman drum. And in order to do that, of course, yeah, that was a little bit tricky because... How do you make a shaman drum? Do you have to like skin a shaman to create the drum head? Like what? Like what's a... I mean, I no. A shaman is a spiritual person, so I wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I've st I've studied with Cherokee shamans and a bunch of other shamans, so I'm sort of interested. What makes a a drum specific to a shaman? Yeah, that's. <laughs> I was very like open and naive, and I don't know why I got this idea to do it, but that led me to a journey. So what it did was that first I had to find out how to like make this drum for the wood structure and I went to the library this is of course before internet you know there was no cell phones <laughs> so I went to the library I got some books and I started to call people and then I just spread the word I'm going to make this drum and I need deer skin or something and then my father knew this artist near a forest or something and he said yeah we there was somebody that hit the deer and you can have the skin and I'm going to send it to you in the mail. <laughs> Only Norwegian mail would accept that. Yeah, but it was insane. And then he wrapped it up and sent it in the post, like in the mail. And I got it and, you know, it started rotting. And, and that's okay because it has to rot a little bit to get the fur off because I had to take off the fur. So I'm standing there outside in school with like, I had to wear a mask for the smell was so strong. But that was one part of that, making the drum is the, you know, the practical. But also to make shaman drum, I was like looking into making a Sami shaman drum. And I am not Sami, and I had to start calling the Sami people, to like, okay, do you know, how do you make a drum? And at that time, I don't know if you know, but that's the same as with the US, there has been like this, the government been really treating the indigenous people, the Sami people here in a horrible way through many centuries. Are you saying America did the same thing? I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, no, they did. <laughs> I'm saying it. Of course they did. They were horrible too. And basically, almost the same types of thing that they took took the children and placed them in schools. And they really went in with missionaries and was like, your religion is devil and go do be Christian. But anyway, that created sort of an obstacle of creating this Sami shaman drum because one, I was not Sami, so I'm coming in as an outsider. And two... The Sami people was also very much not comfortable with, I mean, one, sharing this. And two, they also felt that the shaman drum is such a strong symbol of the indigenous spirituality and culture. So 
that was just really, I was stepping on many different toes and I didn't understand that at that time. So I don't think I really managed to create a working shaman drum, but I learned a lot. But also what I did was to find out, okay, how to use, how do I, am I supposed to use this drum? So I contacted a shaman and he was willing to take me on a journey, a shaman journey. So then I did that. And then that's the point of this long story is to say that that is how I was introduced to shamanism, which I feel very connected to that type of thinking that everything in the world has a soul, like a tree, a stone, animal, humans. We all have a spirit or soul or we have, you know, our own. Essence. Yes, I get it. Yeah, essence. Yeah. Okay, well, one of the big things I always want to know about everybody in the arts, of course, is like how we cobble together a living. So in Norway, I know there are cultural funds and stuff that do help out, but it was oftentimes you have to like apply for these things and all this kind of stuff. So like, what do you do? Do you get funding? Do you have other jobs? Do you like, how do you put together a living? Well, right now, I feel that I have a very good setup and that is that I am now the chair of this National Drawing Association and that gives me a little bit of income and I'm also an art consultant for three different projects and that's a system they have in Norway where artists can become art consultants for public art projects for example if there is a new school they set aside a certain percentage for creating art for that school. And then artists and curators can be art consultants for this. I apply for a job and it's a project-based job. So right now I have three of those projects going. That's a lot. Yeah, but they're very much up and down in intensity. So right now I have like one that is more intense and the other ones are kind of in the back. So then I also do, as I said, the Performance Art Oslo, the Power Festival. And we have become seriously good at applying for funding. So now we have good funding for the festival. And through that, I'm also getting a little bit of money through there. Mm -hmm. So it's very much this, as I said earlier, fragmented, as we call it in Norway, call it loppetep economy which is really as a quilt like you have many different small jobs that create the income no but wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to do all that yeah i mean i'm working many different jobs but i also see for example this type of curating or art consultant or everything really as part of my artistic praxis in a way because I kind of feel that curating is I'm very curious about other artists and other art and I really like to put together people and see what happened when they are together in an exhibition what happened with their work and what happened with them so I think that's also why I'm like, I really like to put together art and artists. And that's also something I see as my artistic praxis in a way. 
Right. So you did your general education and then, and then you focus on curating in a degree, a final degree. So like what made you turn from like being a practicing artist and trying to do that sort of as a hundred percent, like I want to be a practicing artist to curating? Well, first of all, I went to, <laughs> you didn't ask about my education really. Oh, okay back what was your education yeah so, yeah we can back up a little bit because i went to the art school in bergen and then that didn't really work out very well because the art school in bergen and me we didn't really get along so then i found <laughs> wait no wait no 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 i'm not letting you get away with that what how how do you not get along with a school well i was going to this textile department and i was really coming from a place of painting and I was like, oh, I want to paint on textile. And they were like, no, you need to make prints and they need to be very organized and you cannot be free forming anything. And I'm like, no, I'm going to paint big on fabric, canvas, fabric, whatever. I'm just painting. They're like, no, you can't do that. So you have to leave. Really, they told me to leave. Yep. I, I got kicked out of a school as well. It's fine. Yeah, I think it's a really good experience for everybody as artists, because then you really learn rejection. <laughs> That's something you need to be comfortable with. I wish I was kicked out for artistic merit kind of reasons or, or my artistic principles. Unfortunately, it was not that. But I did get kicked out of a school nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to ask why, but okay. <laughs> it's a very long and involved story, and it's it's ludicrous. It involves the police. Like I, I didn't get, just get kicked out of the school. I got kicked out of the city and of the county. Like I mean, it was just ridiculous. So, uh, yeah, so I haven't been back there, obviously. But it was really about me not being at the right place, and they wanted a more rigid type of education with printing, textile, weaving, patterns, and it was a little bit too rigid for me. So they kicked me out and I said, no, you have to wait till next year to kick me out because I have nowhere to go and I need to have a plan. And then I was like, I really need to go to the US. That's where I have to go. So what I did. Wait, I'm from the US. I would never have said, oh, you know where that Norwegian artist should go? The US. Like you could have gone anywhere in the world and you chose the US. Why? I mean, with fabric or painting, if, I mean, literally, you could have gone anywhere. I could, yeah, yeah. I don't know where, but I think I heard about Parsons. And also, we had Kansas City Art Institute came to our school and talked about their school. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the U.S. and find out about some schools. And I'm going to find out about Kansas City Art Institute. I'm going to go there and visit them. And then also I want to find out about San Francisco. Well, that was the school I went to. San Francisco Art Institute. Yeah, I think it was that one. That's the school I got my master's from. Okay, this is going to be a long story. So, <laughs> so then I went to, I thought, okay, I will go there. And then I was like, okay, how am I going to get there? And then I was living in Vatican and then I went out you know, you go out as a student and everything. And then I met these two guys. They were American and they are Americans. And they're like, hey, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you should just come and visit us in the US. And I'm like, sure. <laughs> and I really took them up on the offer. 
because, you know. Why not? Why not? That's what Americans say. And usually they don't really, I mean, sometimes they mean it and sometimes they don't. I take a little bit of offense to that. Like when we, if it, like for me, if I actually say, Hey, you should come visit, I truly mean it. But you're right. There are some people who are quite insincere about that up, that, that uh, offer. But that doesn't matter. What matters is that they said it and I took it literally and I said, Okay, I'm buying a ticket. I'm going to meet you in Los Angeles. And so what I did was I went there. And then I was like, oh my God, this Los Angeles is not working. For, I can't be here. This is horrible. I, I have to drive anywhere. I can't drive. I don't have a driver's license. These guys are just working. I, they cannot take me anywhere. Wait, you don't have a driver's license? Oh, okay. The, ep the epilepsy. I got it. Okay, go on. Yeah. So then I called my mom crying and she said to me, go to Grand Canyon. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm going to Grand Canyon. So, because it wasn't until later I was going to Kansas. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to Grand Canyon. And that was just amazing. I went there on the Greyhound bus in the night, driving and driving, and like all by myself. <laughs> oh my God, that is the worst way to travel in the United States, but go on. Yeah, but it was just like, it was fine. I was driving and driving all by myself. And, you know, and then we stopped at some, you know, rest stop and it was like, you know, a little bit of a break. And so this guy came up to me and was like, oh, are you traveling by yourself? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. But where? I don't know. <laughs> yes, the Grand Canyon is rather large. Yes. And then he said to me, oh, but I know this guy who's working as a bellboy at this hotel. I mean, that's okay. You should go there. I'm like, okay, I will go there. And so I went there and I said, hello, Joe, the billboy in there. And he's like, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, great. Here is a room. I'm like, okay, great. And then I was walking around there a little bit. And then I was hanging out there. And then I was sitting in this, in front of the fireplace there somewhere. And then this other guy came up to me and was like, hi, what are you doing? I want to go hiking down into the canyon, but my leg is a little bit weak my knee had hurt it and if we could go together because he wanted somebody to walk with like he didn't want to go by himself i'm like yes sure great so you hear the repeating thing is that somebody's just like you should go this way and do that and i'm just following along and i felt very much like in like a flow mode and that's something that is so great when you're just traveling is that you just open for this impulses or like just go here go just go there so then we went hiking down into the canyon and that was fine and then it took much longer than we thought so we actually had to sleep outside <laughs> we didn't have a tent and that was very we were like hmm there could be snakes here let's sleep on top of this table <laughs> so anyway and that was an experience and then we went down to this hostel down there and then we hiked up again and that was amazing to go to the grand canyon so anybody should just go to the grand canyon agreed yes that's must see and then he said well why are you staying at the hotel it's so expensive you should go and stay at the hostel the hostel is much less expensive and there are some great people there so i'm like sure great and then i went over to the hostel 
And there I met some people and some people also had driver's license and could rent a car. And we were driving around and looking at all these beautiful sites. And then during that time in the hostel, there was a guy that there was love. Love happened. <laughs> so I met this American guy. Oh, yeah. There's always one of those. Yeah. Yes. So I met this guy and then he was basically like, and we were hanging out and then we went down to Tucson, Arizona and like a group of us and we went there and there was like, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, okay, we want to travel a little bit more together, this guy and I. So he was like, well, where are you going? And I'm like, I'm going to Kansas. <laughs> and he's like, okay, I'll drive you there. So then I went on this epic road trip to Kansas and he was actually, he had been writing for Let's Go USA and he knew all the very interesting rock carvings and beautiful places. So that was just amazing. So he drove me to Kansas. Okay. Then you got to Kansas. Then I got to Kansas. And then we drove to Kansas and looked at the school there. And then the plan was to go and look at the Art Institute at the San Francisco. But I couldn't go there because there was a mudslide. So the road was all like, it was no road, basically. Very strange. It happens, yeah. It happens. So, But then he drove me back to LA. I took the plane home. But it turned out that he was from New York. And he was like, well, if you're going to apply to Kansas, why don't you apply to some school in New York as well? So that's what I did. I applied to Parsons and Kansas, and I got in both, and I chose Parsons. <laughs> Followed the boy, yeah. Yeah, New York. Hey, we all do that. We all do it. I'm not judging. Yeah, but New York, I really wanted to go to New York too. So that's kind of how I ended up in New York City in uh, 95. So I lived there from 95 to 2005-06. Okay. I'm just trying to think about where I was 95 to 2006. Yeah, okay. It's a good time to be in New York. I think it was the best time to be in New York. I, that's what I realize now that, yeah, it was really a great time. I have this belief about New York that like it's or not even just New York, but New York or London or Paris or any sort of major metropolitan area. Like it, it's really amazing. And every creative person should live in one of those places once in their life for a substantial amount of time, but do not stay there because it will crush your soul. Yeah. Or also crush your economy. <laughs> any or, or both. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've never met anybody who stayed in New York that's like, oh, you know, you, it's still inspiring to me. It's still amazing. Like, usually people, they either sell out and are, are like working, you know, well-paid jobs and hustling really hard, or they're super dirt poor and they're bitter. I just hope my friends are happy. <laughs> they live. Yeah, I know. I, either way, they're not living their dream. That's sort of the point. Yeah, I mean, I got very tired from it. And also, this guy that I met in the road trip, it ended. And then I moved to the East Village, and I lived there. And then I moved to Brooklyn. And then there, 
in Brooklyn, I met my husband. And he's an architect, as I said earlier. Basically, I never saw him because he was just working as an architect and never have any vacation. And I knew about vacation because I'm from Norway and I knew about that, you know, a worker should have some more rights. So <laughs> I'm like, hello, we need to move to back to Norway. We need to, I think this is not working. We're just basically working too much and we can't really enjoy New York. We can't enjoy this life, really. It's a horrible thing that like I now live in Europe and before Europe, I was even living in the Middle East. In America, they, you know, vacations are something you, you, you earn versus that they're just expected. Whereas like in Europe and even in the Middle East, the, the nature of like a vacation is, is that's inherent. Like you obviously get a vacation. And I love the, the idea that you obviously get a vacation much more than that you, you know, choose to take one. Cause some people don't even take vacations in America, which I find ridiculous, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is necessary for the health of everybody, for the health of your as a person and the workplace and everything. So at some point, I was like, let's try and go there. We went there when it was the darkest winter. And I said to him that this is as worse as it gets. So can you handle it? And he's like, yeah, I think I can. We can try this. How do you all handle it? I've always wondered this. Like, is it lots of like uh, UV lamps and stuff or vitamin D? Like, what do you, I mean, literally everybody complains about it. Like, oh, the hard winters, long winters, all this. But like, how do you actually deal with that? Well, vitamin D is very important. <laughs> vitamin D. And well, for me, I do yoga. I know, but I mean, but like, it's super cold. You can't go outside for very long. There's like, what, maybe two hours of light. <laughs> yeah, you can be outside when it's cold. It, that is not really a problem. You just have to be dressed properly. And that's also something my husband had to learn because he's originally from Jamaica and he moved to New York when he was 17 with his family. And then they didn't understand how to dress in layers and i'm like so that's something you really have to learn when you come to norway like you have to have wool wool is the inner layer and then you have to have this layer and then that layer for the wind so it's really something you have to know and be taught oh i know i lived in a place uh, in iowa i know that doesn't sound like a cold place but it was absolutely like the most freezing place I've ever lived in my entire life. I had, I literally one, one time had to put every, I put like three winter jackets over each other just to make it not freezing. It was ridiculous, but a nice adventure. Good story. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to some of this other stuff that you do. You're doing though. So the, the performance art Oslo, is that what it's called now? PAO. Yes. So you you founded this or you just work there? Like what's your relationship to it? Well, in 2012, I had this thought, what is happening with performance art in Oslo? Because I saw that the artists that live in Oslo, they were performing elsewhere. They weren't really performing in Oslo. I didn't see any performance. And 
I was like, what's going on with performance? And I have no idea why I thought about this because I didn't do any performance. And so I think it was the performance spirit that was actually, you know, Tanya, you need to, you know, here, here is a question. So I was then on an artistic board at this gallery, Sextini, which is artist-run gallery in Oslo. And I said to the board there, maybe we just have an open call and see, like no curating, just open call. Anybody can perform like a performance. And we have like a performance laboratorium, like a laboratory. So that happened and we had one day just performance after the other. And then the people that we were sitting at the end of this event, they were like, we need to do something together. We need to continue. Something has to happen out of this because we need a place to show our work. Like there was a need. And there I met Francisca Sigrist and me and her and some other people, we decided to make an organization called PAL Performance Art Oslo. And the organization is really is making the festival. And although we were more people just making the organization, it's actually Francisca and I that have been curating all the festivals since then. So we have really been the core of PAL. So what do you fund? Like, do you commission projects? Is it open calls to international artists? Like, who can participate in this? Is it just for artists in Oslo to perform in Oslo? The festival we curate, and most of the time we have been curating it. And for our five year anniversary, we did an open call international. It's usually international artists mixed with some Oslo based artists and Bergen based artists. There is a strong environmental performance artist in Bergen, and their organization, Performance Art Bergen, was actually made just before us, and that's why we call ourselves Performance Art Oslo, because we were like, we are sister organizations. So we have a dialogue, and we interchange and do some projects together too. But the reason why we made an organization is very much because in Norway, Maybe you know there is a lot of artist organizations. I've heard about organizations and associations and societies, and nobody's ever been able to tell me what the difference between them are. But yes. Well, just those things. I don't know about the society organization. But in 1916, the organization for the one that I'm chair of, Drawing Association, that one was funded in 1916. So it is over 100 years old. That was organized by illustrators working for the newspaper, like illustration, and also some artists, I think. And it was really the main focus was to have them work for bettering the economy of being paid for their jobs. So the main focus of that organization and many organizations is to, one, promote the technique or it's like painters' organizations and drawing organization and sculpture. So it's very specific to the field of work, but it's also some organizations that is promoting for young artists society. And then we have this umbrella organization called Norske Billedkunstnere organization that is actually 
being able to negotiate to the politicians and do political work. So all these organizations together can put pressure on the politicians. And that's really how we have, through over all this time, been able to push for the stipends and push for how the, um, we have to have funding for different types of aspects in the arch. So it's basically like an, a lobbying organization. So it, it deals with trying to better the lives and careers of creative people by talking to the government and the, the people who could you know, finance these things. Yeah. I wish everybody had that in every country. Yeah, and that's something that you have to work for, obviously. So I'm very lucky to live in a country where we have all the um, four mothers and fathers that have really been on the barricades and work for us. And I see now that right now I am the chair of this drawing association. And I'm like, yeah, so now it's like my turn to look, just help out a little bit. I love it. Tell me more. I want to know. So what what are the like big important things that are going on in the arts in Norway that need advocacy? Well, I think it's the same as always. It's like, how are we going to get paid? It's a never-ending story, really. But there's got to be something that's sort of a, a topic that's sort of more important or becoming more important now than has tradition. I mean, the, the, to me, the baseline is give us more money, but beyond that. I think like there's always give us more money. And also because of the government we have right now, because right now we have conservative government and they're not very like they are, it's not in their highest priority to fund the arts so we always have to make sure that see what's going on, like, why are they changing this? What's happening really? So it's a lot of work. But with the corona, what happened was that we actually got, because there was like, suddenly there was no, I mean, the culture field has been suffering tremendously. And especially, you know, the music industry and all that what is happening on stage and need the public right there and there, but also the visual arts. But I think that the visual arts will feel more of a ripple happening for the next five years. I mean, the ripple will be longer, I think. Well, and that's what I've been saying is like, it, it sucks that Corona has happened and the pandemics and lockdowns and all these problems. And, and okay, a lot of institutions and creative people are having problems now, and that sucks. But I'm more concerned with the future of, of what's going to happen because I feel like coming out of the pandemic, we're, there's going to be this thing where people are going to say, well, let's shift our funding to more of this instead of the arts, or let's support these arts because they need it more than these other ones. And they're basically in the long term, I feel like there's going to be a lot more problems, but like what you're saying, which is that like music and theater and stuff like to a certain extent people are going to go back to those because people miss those uh, that that social quality and all this kind of stuff but the visual arts you think is going to have a little bit more difficulty in its recovery yeah well based on what happened when there was financial crisis a good reference yes yeah then it went down and it took a long time to get up again but what happened was that we got some... Define a, a long time, though. 
Well, yeah, I'm thinking like five, ten years, but yeah. That's a long time in my career. So yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but what we got here is that we got more short-term, not so very big, but short-term stipends, like one-year working stipend. So the politicians like, okay, we need to do something. We need to do it now. And Bekor and other organizations were like, yes, stipends, that's the only way you can really save these people because that goes straight to the artists. Because there also is a lot of times when the money is going to the institutions, the artists always get paid last and least. Oh, sure. The institutions have to pay rent and heat and electricity and all that before they pay the artists. And also the technicians and, you know, themselves. So it's always the artist that is like, okay, we are going to fund an art production, but... Okay, but from... Okay, I've heard about these artist... What are they called? Artist stipends. The, or artist salaries? Are they called stipends or salaries? Stipends. Stipends. Are they, from your perspective, like, are they actually the right way to go? Like, what's your position on them? Yeah, they're the right way to go. It's just there is too few of them. Like, not everybody. There's always too few. I have never heard anybody in the arts go, you know what? We have plenty of money. Yeah, but there isn't any plenty of money. So that's the fact. But, I mean, when you pay an artist directly, that's an artist can be creative and work. And before we had this long term, you can get, stipend that would last until you pension that was taken away so now the longest stipend is for 10 years i will take a 10-year stipend i'll take that yeah i mean everybody wants that i don't have that i don't have a stipend right now but you know i mean if i had a stipend then yeah that would be part of my economy it's like one year i got a stipend and that was part of my income you know well, like I've heard stories about them like being competitive and they're difficult and they're political and things like this. Like, I mean, it, it, that's like any competition or grant or residency. I mean, they all have these kinds of things baked into them as far as I'm concerned. But like, how, I mean, I guess the question, I don't know Norway and I don't know the system. So like how many stipends are we talking about? Oh, I don't have that number in my head. I mean, well, is it like tens and twenties or is it like hundreds? Oh, there's more like hundreds. Okay. But that's for the whole country though, right? Yeah. But oh, I should have known these numbers. But of all the applicants, it's more like not that many percentage I get it. You know, it's very... Well, that's, yeah, that was going to be the next question. Like what percentage of the applicants do receive it? I think it's sort of like 30% or something. That's still pretty good in the grand scheme of jobs and grants and everything yeah but it still means that you can't really expect to stipend you i mean i apply for it every year and then i see what happens and there are many different types of stipends so there's a project stipend that i got last or actually this year for a project and then you can apply for a one-year grant two-year three-year and five-year and ten-year Okay, wait, I w I've got to ask, okay, I'm a f I'm an expat. Like, so if I move to Norway, would I be eligible? Like, let's say I get a permanent residency there or something like that. Or I don't even know, maybe I'm just an expat working in Norway. Would I be eligible for this kind of stuff? Yeah, anybody can apply for this. Exciting. <laughs> you don't even have to be a member of the artist organization, although they are organizing 
some of these stipends like where you're applying for so it is something anybody can apply for but what is happening in norway is that norway is a small artist community and if nobody knows you it's going to be a little bit tricky because it really takes a long time to get into the it takes an effort to get into the art world here. It's not something that welcomes you with open arms. I lived in New York for 10 years and I moved back to Norway. And the reason why I took this curatorial study is because I really had to learn about the art world. I really had to get into the art world. So what I did was I had five different jobs at five different galleries and was really talking to everybody and going to all the openings and it was really really worked hard to get into the art world that is nothing unique to, to norway uh, i've lived i've moved i think i counted it like 19 times since i graduated high school and every time i've had to sort of re meet and re get to know and start from scratch with a new place and i've even i've traveled now three continents so like you know the us the middle east and now europe and every time everywhere is not receptive to outsiders <laughs> when you first get there and it takes a long time for them to trust you and and respect you and then even potentially want to work with you yeah and not to say fund you it's true that takes a lot of time. So that was really good with this curatorial study that I could be, one, learning about the art world in Norway because it is very different from the U.S. art world. Do tell. Please elaborate. That is because of this artist organization and the artist rights in Norway that we have worked for for so long. Again, do tell artist rights. I want to hear. Well, yeah, the artist rights that the artist organization have worked on for more than 100 years to have stipends and funding and be able to, you know, like when you're showing a place, you get compensated for that. But also there is a wide range of artist-run galleries because of that in Norway, more so than I think in US. US is very much a private capitalistic yes. environment. So you have this for example the Drawing Association has a gallery that shows drawing based, paper based work. All the organizations have this and also you have organizations for each part of the country and in the part of the country you have these art centers that show local but also international so there is this network of artist-run places, artist-run by this organization, but also by, and then artists are making their own galleries. It's amazing. I wish I was born there, but uh, alas, I was not. <laughs> All right, let's try and wrap this up. Uh, so I generally have two last questions. I take it you've listened to some podcasts before, so you know the questions. No, but I want to say I haven't really talked about Lucas. I yeah, you when I asked you about what you were doing, you didn't mention it. So I was like, okay, I guess maybe that doesn't work. She's not doing that anymore. I didn't bring it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I want to talk about. Feel free, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, because I said I was collaborating with 
Tala Festival since 2006, and we met at this curatorial study. And she had also been living abroad, and we really came from, she had lived in New York for a couple of years, and we came both with this like New York background, but also this knowledge of, okay, Norway. And we're like, okay, we know we can just call people and be like, hey, we want to do this. We had this like New York attitude, like go ahead and do it and make it yourself. So what we did is we made this thing called Locus, and Locus is really an artist-run place that can happen anywhere at any time. And we have curated exhibitions and had it in different galleries. And then we also started to go to art fairs, such as we have been to Cosmosco in Moscow. We have been in Colombia and an art fair there in the country. And we have been, oh, what other places? There has been some other places. Anyway, we have been to art fairs. And the reason also why we do that is because there is some funding for artist-run galleries to go to art fairs. There's a specific funding for that. Wait, I'm sorry. You all have funding just to send people to go to art fairs? Artist-run, non-commercial, yes. I'm so bitterly jealous, I swear. Okay, go on. But this is a great opportunity. So we go to an art fair, for example, in Moscow, the Cosmosco Art Fair. And then we have our Locus Gallery there and we bring some other artists and ourselves. So it's like a group exhibition. And our take on creating something in an art fair is very much different than, you know, a commercial gallery. So that's also an interesting way of doing something different in that space and the public, they see that it's different and they respond to it. And last time we had a performance program in that space too. So we had three performances and that was really interesting. You were also at the San Francisco Art Book Fair and... Yes, we were. <laughs> ...ex-contemporary in Miami. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I can research on the internet. It's good. Yeah. You ended up in San Francisco after all. It's good. Yes, that was really fun. And also X was also nice. Yeah, now there is this funding that is for artists to run because we don't have the economy to do that. And we are not so, then we also don't have to sell at the art fair, which means that we can really take a risk and with showing performance or different artists that we know are not really going to sell because we are so new in that market. We don't expect to sell anything in a place where we don't know the public. That is just not going to happen. I'm just getting more and more jealous and envious of, of your lives up there. I swear. I, I need to like somehow get up there. Well, you are coming to Norway soon, so maybe you just stay. <laughs> I would love to get a teaching job up there, and I will stay there the rest of my life. It'll be magnificent. I will just drag my wife kicking and screaming up there. Yeah, maybe it will happen. I would love it because, I mean, I've even looked at some of the schools that are in Norway as well, the art schools, and they're very impressive as far as like art schools, that I, at least in the ones I can compare to that I've seen around the world. Like they're really quite good. I mean, I shouldn't say just Norway, but a lot of Scandinavia, like some of the ones in Sweden and in uh, Finland and a couple other places, like they're really, really amazing art schools. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I yeah, I would love to work for him. So if anybody's hiring a professor, photography is my specialty. I'm happy to, you know, submit my application. That's fine. Noted. <laughs> All right. Oh, I'm so bitter about the fact that you can just be funded to go travel the world as a, as an art fair, but I, I go to art fair. Yeah, but it's hard work, you know, you got to work for it. It's not like happening by itself. Is it really hard work? Yeah, you have to make the application. I mean, going to Moscow with an exhibition is not dance on the... It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's funny because like, it's, a, it's a vocabulary thing. When I think of the words hard work, I think of manual labor. The idea of putting together a presentation of a performance piece that I'm going to take to Moscow to an art fair, nothing in that sounds like hard work. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it's fun, but it's hard work to take an exhibition to have the transportation, for example. And that costs a lot of money to transport an exhibition to Moscow from Norway. So we did that one time. Oh, and then dealing with customs. Oh, it's such a pain in the ass dealing with customs, especially when you're doing like where you take art into a country, but you, but you intend to bring it back. They just don't understand that in customs. <laughs> They're like, what? Yeah, so we did this transportation thing one time, and then, yeah, that was really tricky. So since then, we have been taking it in the luggage, yeah, or part of it, at least. Yeah, much smarter. All right. Any other topics you want to talk about before we wrap it up? Yeah, no, I think it's good. Okay, so my, my last questions are always, uh, do you have three contemporary artists that you're sort of looking at and that you think that you think are somehow... Uh, should be sort of paid more attention to. My brain is not working, I feel. It's okay. We can skip it. We'll move on. So the, you, you're going to hate the last question then if you can't forget that one. The best, uh, some advice for the next generation. Yeah, but that's easy. Just collaborate. <laughs> Collaboration is hard. I mean, I've collaborated in my lifetime and I would say 75% of them have been miserable failures for any number of reasons, you know, oftentimes interpersonal relationships, sometimes it's just artistic differences, whatever, but like, it's really hard to find a very good working collaboration. Yeah. And that's why I stick to those that is working. They are really, okay, that's, then we go on and I didn't plan for these collaborations to last for so long, but it's like going one project at a time and it's working. I think that if you find a good collaborative partner that you can support each other in a way, like financially, but in an artistic way or whatever, then, you know, try to stick with it, like try to really stay with it. I mean, you don't have to do stuff all the time together, but I think that's really, really good if you are the collaborative type. I mean, I realize that I am a very collaborative type and I like to do that, but I also like to do my own artwork by myself so if you have that then i think maybe just like be very conscious or try to find out how what type of person are you and how can you help each other i mean just being a group to help each other with applications with creating budgets anything just to have a group of people that support each other. Because one thing that I really find very important in the art world is to be supportive of each other and professional enough 
to be lifting each other up. I think that that's professionality to lift each other up and support each other through this, like giving each other opportunities. And when people are like pushing each other down or saying bad things, I'm like, that's, I really find that very destructive. And I just hope that, you know, we have enough challenges from the get-go with financing all this stuff. So we need to support each other. It's difficult. I mean, I I find that a lot of, and this is going to sound so bad when I say this out loud, but men are much more competitive in this kind of stuff than women are for sure. And certain mediums like photographers are incredibly competitive versus like printmakers are much more collaborative working people because, and I think a lot of it goes back to photographers do their photographs by themselves and they do it sort of more or less by themselves. Whereas a printmaker sort of needs to work in a studio with other people. So like certain mediums, end up having people that are just don't work as collaboratively as other mediums. And I also noticed that like when I was younger, I was very collaborative. And then when I sort of got out on my own, doing my own career, I became less collaborative. And then now in my older age, I'm sort of lending back to being more collaborative again. So I think part of it is mediums, part of it is gender and part of it is age. Yeah, definitely. That's my soapbox for the day there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you said something in that I was interesting too. The, yeah, the techniques that are different. They are. Like like a painter is often less collaborative but versus like a graffiti artist probably would be very collaborative because they generally need more than one person to help them do whatever. Um, so like, they're just different mediums that lend more to working collaboratively. Obviously, music, performance art, these things are inherently collaborative versus a lot of the visual arts are not very collaborative. Yeah, and I found that working with performance artists with through this festival is like they are super nice people. <laughs> So I really like, I was like, oh, these performance artists are very friendly and social and let's have dinner together and talk and it's a little bit different. But I like to surround myself with people like to share and like, I mean, just collaborate in a conversation kind of like we are doing now. This is like an exchange of ideas. So I see this as a collaboration too. I hope the, the whole podcast is a collaboration. Like that's because, I mean, I know certain things, but everybody I talk to knows other things. And so it, I'm hoping everybody learns from all the different uh, people that I talk to because we only learn, we, well, you know, it's sort of that idea of uh, all the, uh, all boats rise on the high tide kind of thing. Like, so if everybody learns this stuff, then everybody gets better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm tired of too many secrets in the art world. Oh, yeah, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> I, yeah, but unfortunately very common. Yeah, I think it's very strange. I find that very strange. Yeah, but I mean, there was a time, that, I mean, this is the thing, like there was a time when like things were super competitive and super political and all this kind of stuff, and they weren't very transparent and they weren't very sort of, uh, you know, known to the public. And so like they could keep a lot of secrets, but I think, or I hope, that a lot of that time has passed and a lot more things are much more transparent. And so it's 
sort of necessary to be more open and honest with, about a lot of things. Like, yeah, I go back to, I had a teacher in school and he taught us basically like there's no reason to keep secrets because what he did was it was a photography class and what he did was he set up a still life in a room and he sent us each student in one by one and said take a picture he didn't tell us what to take a picture of he just sent us in the room there was a still life and basically at the end of it all 10 artists made something completely different even though we all had the exact same subject we had the exact same equipment we had the exact same everything but just because of each of our individual aesthetics, our styles, our backgrounds, our genders, or whatever, we just made different outcomes. So there's no reason to keep secrets because even if somebody ha has every bit of technical knowledge, conceptual knowledge as you, they will never make the same thing you do. Yeah, right. So I learned that at a young age. That's good. I know. I just wish more people would believe it. Yeah. <laughs> But alas, there we are. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yes, about those three, <laughs> the three artists. Yeah, you got three artists now? Because I can only think of dead artists. You can do dead artists. Well, how, how dead are we talking about? Are we talking about like Michelangelo dead, like Da Vinci dead, or... <laughs> no, but I'm so into these, the women artists that have been overlooked very much in the art world and i really really wish that i knew about this artist when i went to art school okay bring him on so leonora carrington do you know her yes not by name but i'm very good with visuals not words so she was one of the surrealist artists yeah you should look up leonora carrington a british artist that moved to mexico amazing artist and if i knew about her in art school my art would have been different and my artistic praxis would have been influenced by her so much because I kind of knew that I missed that view on the world like, and also her as a woman. So she is a very important... When I first saw her work, I'm like, why have I not known about this? And I'm like almost calling Parsons like why didn't you tell me about her <laughs> this is ridiculous <laughs> I lived in New York yeah because the art world's run by men that, white men that's why yeah and that's the problem so Leonora Carrington I said her name three times go and look her up because she is amazing and of course we have Hilma of Clint that everybody in the US now knows about right <laughs> And the world. Uh, a previous guest actually mentioned her, yes. Yes. I saw her a big show of hers in Sweden in 2013. And I was like, okay, this is going to change the art world. And this is going to change the world. And it was amazing, that show at the Moderna Museum in Stockholm. And it has. It has changed the art world. And it has been to the Guggenheim. And her work, I think, is very, very important in this, also this spiritual aspect of what we as artists do. We are showing the world as kind of like a spiritual version of the world in a sense. And I mean, she is very much an artist that is showing us spiritual visions and stuff. So that's another artist. Yeah, and then I can name a Norwegian artist that I learned about 
just recently that is called Lul Krog. And she made these humongous drawings in the 1800s and early 1900s. And I mean, huge drawings. She just was like, okay, I had enough of the art world in Oslo. I'm going to go and have my own house. And then she just put this paper on the whole wall and made these big drawings with coal. What is, what is it called? Charcoal. Charcoal. And they are beautiful. And I mean, the scale of it, that's what we think about is very, they look very contemporary because of the scale and because of the roughness of how they're made. So that was also something that when I saw her work, I was like, wow, this is really intense. And she was very inspired by the Japanese and Chinese scroll paintings. There's so many women out there that are coming up to the surface now. And I think it's very, very important, this work of looking at and finding and rewriting the art history to art history to really focus on these amazing women artists that have been there all the time. I mean, I learned that, oh, there wasn't so many women artists because they weren't allowed to paint or whatever. And that's just not true. They just weren't accepted by the art world. They were still there. Yeah, and many paintings were maybe just re-signed by somebody else, a man. Or they used a nom de plume. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's sad that the, the, I mean, the the entire art world throughout history has been usurped by the male, white, mm, I don't, dominance. I don't even know what the right word for it would be. I mean, whether it's indigenous people or women or minorities or whatever like it's there's so much that's still out there to be reintegrated into the history of the art that uh it's going to take a long time to sort of re recontextualize all the stuff that should be there yeah and that's something i see at instagram that i'm opening right now like on instagram there's some nice accounts that is showing women artists through history and contemporary also. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of like Gertrude Kaisbauer, the early photo secessionist. Uh, she made these beautiful portraits. Yeah, I don't know about that one. You have to say that over again. They're these beautiful, soft, romantic portraits. I mean, they're really exquisite. But yeah, all right. Well, again, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you're learning a lot from this podcast. I have learned so many things that I did wrong in my career and so many things that I need to be focusing on moving forward in my career. I hope this podcast has inspired you and assisted you in being more successful in your creative endeavors. If you liked the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would also be greatly appreciated. I would like to thank BG Rax or Bugu Rax. We'll go with BG Rax for their five-star ratings. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Jakub Czerny, and the music was created by my childhood friend, Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete.
Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.